Hey, this is Todd Burns from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, our regular podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. Chicago-born, NYC-based saxophonist Matana Roberts is three chapters into her 12-part Coin Coin series of albums. Named after a freed slave and businesswoman, Roberts saw Coin Coin as an opportunity to challenge herself. The records are a deeply personal project, inspired by her own experiences with spirits, and an important document that both pays homage and openly questions the American jazz tradition. In this interview with Anuba Mystery at the 2016 Red Bull Music Academy in Montreal, Matana discussed the evolution of her practice over the years and the stories and ideas feeding the Coin Coin Project. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after the lecture. For now, enjoy this bit of Couch Wisdom. So please welcome Matana Roberts. Welcome back to Montreal. Thank you. It's a, this city is like a second home yeah, for tell me. Yeah, tell me about that. Your label, Constellation Records, is based here, but you spent a, a, quite a chunk of time here. Yeah, I started spending... I've been coming to Montreal for, I don't know, when the for maybe the early aughts. I started coming to Montreal regularly thanks to um, the Sioni Popolo Festival. I got to play the that very first festival with the band that I was in at the time called Sticks and Stones. And I made a lot of really fast friends. It was so, at the Casa, it was so easy to make friends. And um, I just started coming back regularly. And then I got to this period in New York where I just, I was um, spending a lot of time working trying to make money to afford an apartment that I really couldn't afford and trying to figure out, okay, well, how am I going to do this? What am I going to do? Blah, 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 blah. And then I got pulled into a research um, program that was going on at McGill around uh, improvisation and social practice. It's called ICASP, um, the Institute for something, 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 something. I can't remember. Improvisation, community, and social practice. social practice, practice, thank you. Yeah, that's it. And uh, it allowed me to come to Montreal and spend, you know, the legal time that I was allowed to be here for months at a time before going back to the States. So I did that for two years. And during that time, I would workshop some of my music and kind of like live rehearsals for people to see and also still workshop my music in New York and other places around the world. And uh, Don and Ian from Constellation Records came to some of those workshoppings and became really interested in the music. Uh, I couldn't find an American label to put out the particular music that they are putting out for me. And I remember they came to a loft show at a space called L'Anvers. Is it still here? No. no. Okay. Uh, it's the, plant the plant. Okay. The plant. Um, so I I did a lot of things there, and uh, Don and Ian would come to those shows, and and one of the shows they came to or workshoppings, they were like, "Where's the record?" It's like, "Oh, there is no record." They're like, "Oh, well." It's our, it'll be our record. We'll put out that record. And so that's how things 
began for me here. Can you tell us actually a little bit about that program? Because it sounds kind of interesting. You were working with Indigenous communities? I was asked to... ICASP had received this grant from the Canadian government to study how improvisation can can foster community building. And so they wanted to bring in different people to consult on that project. And I was one of the people that was brought in to do that. And it involved setting up a program in the attic space of this uh, kids drop-in center called uh, Janus 2000, or Janesse 2000, sorry if I'm saying that wrong. And it basically was a drop-in center for at-risk kids, a lot of at-risk indigenous youth, Canadian youth, a lot of um, at-risk uh, Afro-Canadian youth um, who would just come in after school. And we would sit with them in this attic space where um, McGill and also uh, the owners of Casa del Popolo and uh, uh, the Suoni Popolo Festival funded instruments to be in that room for those kids. And it was just kind of like that, it's kind of like that punk rock aesthetic of like, you know, like some of my favorite punk bands. They got together, said, we're going to start a band. None of them ever played instruments ever in their lives. And they booked their show like they had their first show like two weeks after they put their band together. It was like that kind of aesthetic and using improvisation. Um, and that program, as far as I know, is still going. So, yeah. Am I supposed to look at you or am I supposed to look at you? you? Can, I, like, I don't, like, who am I supposed to be looking at? I what? think you can look at all of us. Okay, because yeah. I'm feeling very self-conscious <laughs> about that. Like, who am I supposed to be? Hi, hi, I mean, hi, hi, hi. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that, what did you learn from that program though? I'm curious, like, did, do you feel like it was effective? Well, yeah, I do think it was effective, but also, you know, my sojourn running through Canada is just really interesting how different Canada and America are different. You know what I'm saying? And how sometimes people like to group the United States and Canada together because we are on the same continent. But culturally, Montreal is very... You know, the whole, I remember the first time I went into a grocery store in Little Italy, my French is pretty bad. If I had remained here, it would be much better. But um, I had gone into this grocery store and the woman was speaking to me in French and I, uh, Quebecois French, and I wasn't understanding what was going on and she was getting really irritated. And I remember feeling like this huge sense of relief where I was like, oh, that's not racism. It's not sexism. It's this whole other ism. It's this nationalism that I've never been exposed to. So dealing in that program, I felt like uh, kids were talking to me a lot about things of that nature. And then the whole, you know, the indigenous issues, the way um, Canada approaches indigenous issues are... You know, they're still not on point, but they're way better than in the United States to me. So it was interesting to have discussions with these at-risk youth about how they felt about their communities. And then on top of that, the whole Afro-Canadian thing is this whole other thing that's very different from African-Americanness, where I was already coming, coming from a country where my president looks like my uncle. So I have a different my whole idea about what blackness is 
sort of shifted in a way that it had not shifted for the youth that I had worked with here. And a lot of the Afro-Canadian youth, it was so funny when they found out that I had lived in Brooklyn and I lived in Bed-Stuy. And they're like, yeah, Bed-Stuy. Like, what? Like, you know, Canada, Montreal is great. No, but it's not Brooklyn. Yeah, it's not Brooklyn, but Brooklyn is not all that, you know? So it's just interesting. Kids teach you a lot about development and how to be and how to notice nuance and how to to really involve yourself into into something. I got a lot of a lot out of it and there's still a lot uh, that I feel like will come to me much later down the line still. Um you're already working as a musician before you came into this program. What kind of pulled you into the academic side? Oh, I you know, I'm not uh into the academic side. Well, I mean, in order to have a career in music, art, or whatever you're doing, you have to stick your toes in as many different fountains. I'm not really, I'm not like thick in the, in academia in the way that some people are because I don't, a lot of the, a lot of my music comes from here and not from here. But I, but I am a thinker and I do like to, to kind of critically tear things apart. Um, but I also I grew up in a in a around a lot of uh, intellectual circles um, in Chicago, just a very socially uh, aware groups of people, and within that you had like a certain sort of intellectual realm. So I have uh, the vestiges of that, but I try to. I like dipping a toe there, but I don't ever want to be completely there. It doesn't feel right for me. Mm-hmm. Um, you talked a little bit earlier about Constellation saying, we're going to give you this home for your record. Um, I don't know if everyone here knows much about Constellation. Can you tell them kind of some of the values, I guess, behind behind the label? Oh, well, Constellation to me is like the the little label that could, like the... Their aesthetic is so much, so much reflects what I believe in. Like, uh, I don't value the things that I own. I value the things that I can do. I value the things that I can learn. Uh, I value what is inside, not so much what's on the outside. And so Constellation, you know, is, um, I don't know quite how to describe them, but just to say, you know, their DIY aesthetic is incredibly important to their foundation and uh, having and being socially aware is really important to their aesthetic. And, you know, it's a very particular work ethic that to me is actually is very Canadian. Like it's a very, they have a very, you know, put your nose to the grindstone kind of work ethic that shows in everything that they they do, and um, I really needed that music to exist in a space where I felt like it would be cared for in that way, and that's exactly what Constellation has done. Well, let's listen to um, some music from your first record, which is part of a, of a series, and, and we'll, we'll get into that a little bit. Hey there, at this point in the lecture, they played some music. Unfortunately, due to copyright reasons, we can't play that here. Yeah, um, bum too. Let's go back to Couch Wisdom. 
So that is a song called, that's half of a song, a nine minute uh, track called Libation for Mr. Brown. Um, And it's from the first record in a 12 part series called Coin Coin. Can you tell us, before we get into the, the series itself, can you tell us a little bit about what we're hearing there? what you're trying to do with that that uh, piece of music. Well, that's a rearrangement of a very famous poem by the great late Oscar Brown Jr. He's a great poet, um, musician. He had one of the very first uh, jazz TV shows in the States for a while, and he has a very prolific family of musicians. His daughter, Maggie Brown, is this amazing singer. But uh, for that record, I wanted... I got into listening to auctions and how interesting uh, the auctions are and that they sound, they're really hard to sing and they're, they sound sort of happy, but they're, things are being sold. And I was going to write my own and then I came across Mr. Brown's version and I thought, oh, I'm going to do that and then I'm going to arrange that and add to it. So the, the last segment of the... I don't listen to my own records. I should listen to my own records, but I haven't listened to that record in a really long time. And when I talk about all the things you could do for me, do to me, I wrote that segment. I extended his poetry. I like group singing. That's something that I actually got from seeing uh, Montreal bands perform, like a Silver Mount Zion, uh, for instance. It's just one of my favorite bands of all time. This group singing, people singing together, and this idea, because I actually really don't like to sing. I really, like, I play saxophone. I, that's, that's where my, that's the root for me. But in terms of dealing with this particular music, which is so narrative-based, I just felt like, okay, I just feel like there needs to be singing, and it needs to be community singing. So each segment of the work, with the exception of the last segment, because it was solo, um, always explores some area of group singing. And that particular poem is not particularly nice to sing. I find a joy in it. For what I know about history, I am so obsessed with American history. The history of peoples, I'm so fascinated with where people come from. Um, that What's so great about that song is I, I know that I sit here today <clears throat> because there were men and women who had to exist in these, these auction scenarios. And they survived, and because they survived, I survived, and my life is pretty good at the moment. So there's something to be happy and joyful there. How hard was it to actually get behind the mic and sing them, put down the saxophone and and do this oh, thing you I find difficult? I hate singing because, I mean, I don't want to, like, ex- excuse me if I'm offending any singers in the room. But I just like, and I love, and I listen to singers. I love great singing. And I, I listen to a lot of pop music and I listen to a lot of jazz. And I listen to all sorts of things. Um, but I also wanted my voice to represent how people, what gave me kind of the, the push is reminding myself that there's a tradition of people just singing to sing. And it's not about trained singing. I'm not a trained singer, as you can totally hear on that and um, 
how people would just sing to get through things and how when you read about like uh, tra- like uh, historical tragedies or like for instance i'm thinking about the um the bombing uh the bombing attempt in france uh, at the football stadium remember that and did it, and if you saw any of the footage of people leaving the stadium and someone decided to sing the national anthem and everybody started to sing along it's like moments like that or you hear the history of the titanic when the titanic was sinking there were people singing and and knowing that people in prison uh, on in uh, chain gangs they sing i'm really interested in that blurred line between the joy and the pain and trying to bring that together and so that kind of gave me like the push to go okay well I'll do this but I don't want anybody to ever say I'm I'm a vocalist because not because I quote-unquote hate singing like I said before but because I know so many talented vocalists I don't really have the right to say, yeah, I'm, you know, that, because it's not really my area of study. It's just something I'm dabbling in. So you talked a little bit about the story of of that piece in particular. Um, Can you tell us a bit about the Coin Coin series and how how what you're doing on that song fits into the, the larger narrative? Well, the Coin Coin series is my attempt to kind of bridge a few things. I have a really particular interest in the spirit world and contacting the spirit world. And it's something I've dabbled in uh, since I was a small child. And then I stopped dabbling in for a while because usually when you do those sorts of things, you need a guide. If you don't have a guide, it can lead to all sorts of, apparently can lead to like states of psychosis and things of that nature. It came, became apparent to me that music was actually supposed to be my guide if I wanted to dabble in those things. So it was a combination of that, a combination of my interest in American history. I'm so fascinated by how completely fucked up America... Can I curse in here? Okay, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so, like, nervous. This is nerve-wracking. Um, but American history is so just... Uh, complex and complicated and there were so many different areas of that history that I've always wanted to look at and I couldn't figure out a way to you know working on music and working on a craft which is what being a musician should be takes a lot of time and I was trying to figure out a way I could sort of combine things so my interest in history, my interest in the spirit world, and my interest in some sense in my own ancestry. I have records of my own ancestry going back now to about 1750. And I just felt like I wanted to share that somehow, and how could I push it together? Can you tell us about Coin Coin, the name and the person? Yeah, so Coin Coin is a nickname of a, um, a very famous uh, former slave woman that I'm related to by marriage it's possible that i'm in there by blood but i don't know for certain um who became a very powerful landowner in a a part of louisiana called natchitoches she created this whole area where free people of color could live and exist and have like a really incredible standard of life in America during a time period where you wouldn't expect that to be happening. She was the first uh, strong female archetype I'd been exposed to as a child. 
my grandfather used to call me Coin Coin, and I learned about her before I learned about Harriet Tubman and all these people. Um, and so I just decided that I wanted her to, the lore of that work to give me my push off into what I was after because her story, I heard about it every year of my life um, through family. And so I wanted to do something to honor what that story, what her story did for me and her, what her story did do for me is it just gave me a lot of courage to be who it is I'm supposed to be, to be, uh, to be out here doing what it is I'm doing, to be a black woman in the world. It was very particular, that story to me. And so, yeah, that's, that's who she is. Yeah. You're also foregrounding um, a lot of women's voices in, in this work. Um, and your your own uh, as well. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of that? Ask me that again. I'm foregrounding women's like actual voices in in the music that you're hearing <clears throat> itself. Yeah, I am. Uh, the way history had been passed down to me, the way ancestral history had come down to me, was mostly through the women, and I thought that was really fascinating. And at the time that I had started this project, I'd read a book. I cannot. I need to look up the author's name again. It was an indigenous uh, American woman. I think she was Navajo. And she had done research on her family, five generations. And she was trying to understand the linkages between trauma that existed in each generation. And how, for instance, in each generation of her family, there was the trauma of alcoholism. And how that just went from generation to generation to generation to generation but how no one ever really talked about it. And I found that really fascinating how, you know, like the idea of uh, humor, like your sense of humor, like people, you know, however funny you are, and you want to say that you know where that came from, that sense of humor comes from, you know, hanging out with your parents or blah, blah, blah. But where did their sense of humor come from? And where did their parents... It's this through line that you really can... I feel like my sense of humor, for instance... There was somebody on a plantation somewhere being funny. That's why I can be funny, because there's this through line that happens. And so I just, I really wanted to place women's voices in a very particular way. Not forget about the men, but to have some sort of root for myself in terms of how I feel about a quote-unquote woman's place in the world and and how I feel about uh, how people connect or not connect and how people share stories. This project you embarked on was originally fashioned as, as a 12-part series. Yes, it was 10. Okay. <clears throat> it was 10. How much and why did I do involved? that? It was 10, but then I realized... So the other part of the project in terms of trying to multitask all these things, like my interest in history, my interest in uh, the spirit world and blah, 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 is that I also wanted to challenge myself as a composer. I was like, how can I challenge myself as a composer? And I figured that if I looked at these very particular historical segments that kept popping up, just kind of in the ether in my head... I could use each of those segments to 
work with different types of ensembles, to work with different configurations, work with different mediums. You know, at this point, I'm also working with electronics and video. That was the last record. Um, I saw having that segmented work as a way to challenge myself. But I also really love books. I love reading. I think reading is a is a real privilege. My great, great, great grandfather, my great, great grandfather didn't learn how to read until he was 42. Can you imagine? I can't imagine not being able to read. And so I called them chapters for that reason. I And I do have a writing practice. So I was just trying to sew all these things together in a way that made sense for me. How much of the process of putting each of these chapters together is is planned in advance? I mean, or is it completely improvised with every record as you go along? No, so the whole framework has been planned out since 2005. The problem, (laughs) the problem is I didn't realize it was going to take me as long as it's taking. I started 2005 and I had this whole, I was like, by 2011... I'm going to have like a concert of all the segments. That was, I said, that's what I'm going to do. And it'll be like my ring cycle or something. And and that'll be it. But um, each segment I become so, I get really in the world of the segment. And then I notice just new things that I can try and new things I can do. It also took some time because uh, it took some time to find a, the right label And so there was a period where I was performing the work without there being records and then kind of had to backtrack to start over. And um, But everything's been mapped out. It turned into 12 chapters because I forgot that within the 10 ensemble configurations that I have mapped out um, that I've forgotten the most important thing that I love doing and that's solo work, uh, solo saxophone work, solo just solo material I think is really important uh, area of exploration as an instrumentalist so I decided to tack on uh, these two solo segments that are very representative of me myself more so than this history how do you see um, your solo repertoire as different from the ensemble work well, it's the process is similar, but the the emotive foundation is different. The vulnerability is way different. You know, even when I listen to that ensemble record and I go, "Oh God, yeah, I did record, I did say those things, and I didn't mean to say that." And it's you know, like uh, uh, Mr. Drummer, give our Mr. Bass play what? Where did that come from? But that was recorded live in the studio with the live studio audience. So, you know, too late is committed to, uh, God, every time I hear that, it's like, oh, where was, who was that? That was not me. That was me. But like chapter three for me is just incredibly personal in a different kind of way. And so I feel like the solo records have a different sense of vulnerability. Um, do I don't we, have a cold. I have a bad <laughs> allergy reaction today. Long story. You talked a little bit about how with each record you've kind of learned 
learn something different. So how, so you had this 12, this 12 segment series mapped out that is taking more time than you thought. Um, and you're learning things along the way, which is obviously a natural thing that's going to happen. I mean, how much has the process of putting each, each recording together changed? it's bloomed into this whole other like I'm not in a hurry but I it's bloomed into this whole other thing like the third chapter allowed me to explore making more visual artwork I started making more visual artwork working with more video and I had my first exhibition of my artwork this year which was a big deal for me I never imagined that I'd be able to have a toe in that world, but now I have a toe there. And that's interesting. And it allowed me to, um, just my writing style has gotten richer over the, like I'm really excited working on this next record, how my sense and intuition and depth are, they still need a lot of work, but they're changing, they're going somewhere else. How do you, how do you, hone your intuition? Oh, that's such a hard question. Um, how do I hone my intuition? You, yeah, if you say your intuition needs work, what, like, what does that look like? Well, intuition is about a certain sort of self-confidence and belief in oneself. And it's, uh, it's a really hard thing for artistic people to plug into and to, to understand that it is your birthright. That if you are a creative person and you, you know, we as creative people, we see the world with kind of like a third eye. There's a third eye in which we see things. There's a kind of a different reach of which we kind of go after things. There's a different way in, in how we think about, you know, ideas. Um, and so that has a lot to do with how you utilize your intuition. I think uh, it just takes practice. It's just practice. And the most important word of all time, the most important word of all time for creative people, it takes a lot of failure. I love failure. Failure is awesome. Like, it's just like... Uh, because I'll tell you, like, when I had uh, put together, um, God, the word like is in my language. That's a very American thing. And like, and like, and like, like, like. Uh, I'm going to get rid of that. Um, when I put together the first record, when I finished the score, and I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. But this score looks crazy. Who's going to take me seriously with this? You know, and it bloomed into this whole other thing that I couldn't even, I didn't even imagine at the time would happen. And that's a moment that I was able to hone my intuition in knowing that when you, as a creative person, do something with intention, intention and also humility and just some sort of thankfulness to, not to some like sort of higher power, but just like the universe, like you're being used as a channel to communicate some really precious information. Um, once you kind of settle in there, there's no limit on on what you can do or or there's no restriction. There's only restriction if you think there's restriction. Um, how much of your... You're talking about 
this actually being quite mapped out and you knowing the different ensembles that you want to work with. So in the actual process of recording or performing this music live, how much of it is improvised? Oh, so a composition. But it's a it's a mix. I like reading music. I enjoy reading music. I'm not great at it, but I I'm good enough to like do like a as a I've worked as a freelance musician in, in many different capacities in terms of like studio work and like side woman on different types of records and all sorts of things. I enjoy reading music. I spend a lot of time learning how to do it. So the the compositions are a mix of Western notation and also uh, a mix of what is called graphic notation. I use a lot of graphic notation, which is pictures and drawings and sometimes words. And this chapter one was actually a game, kind of convoluted game piece. I, I like to use a lot of different techniques within and then some improvisation. But I it's not uh I don't like to I don't really enjoy just completely for myself, completely improvised sets of music. What is that? Can you describe the graphic notation a little bit more? Like what kind of images? All over? sorts of things, like photographs. I collect old photographs from the turn of the century. I also have photographs of my family from like the 1870s, 1850s. And so that got me interested in photography and how you can, <clears throat> there's, a, there's not a single thing, there's not a single image that you cannot look at in this room and not figure out some way to turn it into sound. That you cannot, like uh, there's not a single thing I can see where I'd be like, Oh, yeah, I wouldn't... What would that be? Like, it's sort of kind of like a descriptive process of... Uh, um, there's a cup of water, and the cup of water is in a glass, and the glass is reflective, and the reflection is showing light, and the light is blooming here. And there's so many different ways in which you can navigate that musically. Also, his, the history that I use in the pieces... Um, there's a lot of, uh, there are layers in those scores that you would only know if I told you they were there in terms of certain, uh, years being turned into sounds. Like, uh, you can take like the year 1827 and then you can look at that and go, okay, one, eight, two, seven. You can look at those as, as notes. You know what I'm saying? There's so many different ways I am all for kind of like outside of the box thinking in that way. But you also have to be very careful how you explain that to other musicians also. And so doing this work has also been a practice in trying to make sure that I get better at being able to communicate that to people. And then when the improvisation comes in, what I love about it in these pieces is it allows for the individuality Improvisation is a very personal, individual thing, and it allows for the personality and the individuality of the improviser to come through, where you don't always get that in the written or the graphic scored sections. When you first started playing music, you started playing the clarinet, I believe. Yeah. So you were taught to read music. When uh -huh. did you when did you kind of make the mental shift, like this is not the only way I need to 
make or play music? Because I don't know if that occurs to a lot of people. I mean, thank God for music. Thank God for free music lessons in the public school system. That was how I was able to get um, free music lessons. Music was the only thing that sort of made sense uh, when I was a kid, like trying to figure it out. But I still wasn't, you know, I was still that kid for any like uh, band or orchestra nerds in here. I was still that kid who was always sitting next to the other kid and kind of looking at the other kid while I'm trying to look over here to play music, you know, sort of thing. And I remember that, I remember that change that was like fifth grade and it was a, a band director. Her name was Mrs. Rogers and she saw me doing that. So she stopped the whole band. She's like, okay, we're playing the... Uh, 1812 Overture. And she was like, all right, clarinets, one by one, I want to hear you play those four measures. And she went, and then she got to me. And of course I couldn't play it. And she yelled at me about, you got to practice, you know, practicing, 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 practicing. And uh, and I went home that week. I was so embarrassed to be so uh, pushed out like that. I practiced every day and then I went back and then she did it again, and I played it perfect. And it was like, right, so that's what it takes. But when I got further down the line, there were just certain things about music that I still didn't understand from a visual standpoint, from a Western standpoint, but I understood it in, um, from like colors or like a different combination of numbers. And then when I went to college, I had some mean teachers who constantly told me I didn't really have much to offer musically and that I needed to find something else to do and that my favorite was, uh, the only way you're ever going to get a gig is you're going to have to marry a musician. <clears throat> that was awesome. That was the 90s, yeah. And uh, I was like, right. It's like, no. So it was, so my compositional style kind of came from trying to to say, no, I can make music any way that I want to make as long as I believe in it. And also, you know, in, I was in Chicago at that time and I was exposed a little bit at that time to the Association for the Advancement of Creative Musicians with people like Fred Anderson, Nicole Mitchell, David Boykins, Josh Abrams, who wasn't in the organization but played with a lot of AACM people. <clears throat> and those people were doing really amazing they're all really amazing thinkers. So I, I was exposed to that a little bit. And then within my own family environment, I was just always told that I could do anything I wanted to do and that there's no one that can tell me. They can say, oh, you can't do it like that, but they can't tell me that I can't do it. So I think it was just like a combination of, of people, places, and things. And I owe... It's a long list of people that I owe and thanks for that. Let's listen to another piece of music. This is from the second, the second chapter of Coin Coin. This is a song called The Labor of Their Lips. So that's quite different from the first piece we heard. Yeah, that's very different. And what's so interesting about that section is it sounds very improvised, right? But what's happening during that entire section is there's a series. Each of the scores, I really should start loading the scores back up online. There are bits and pieces of the score on an old Flickr page that you can find on my website. Um, but there's a series of different cues going on throughout that entire section. 
there are, are horn lines that are going on that the musicians know to listen for, that they're supposed to go into certain sort of ideas, uh, concepts. There's some conduction. Uh, I was really influenced by the great late Butch Morris, a uh, New York musician who formed this... Um, idea called conduction, a way of conducting improvisers. And I used to play in a band for for maybe four or five years in New York called Burnt Sugar that used conduction. And I used some conduction in my own music. So there's conduction going on where I think I'm like giving, there's like a thumbs up, thumbs down that means a particular sort of groove. There's body language, there's a body movement that I do that cues the band to go into a certain feel. And then when I do the opposite of that body movement, they move out of that feel. So everyone that plays that music, they have to have eagle eyes. It's really, it's really fun for me, and I think it's really fun for them. And then the opera singer is actually singing uh, music that was written by my great-great-grandfather, great-great-great-grandfather, the, the man that I told you didn't learn how to read until he was in his 40s. He taught himself how to read by... Um, copying uh, snippets from the Bible and placing it on staff paper and trying to teach himself how to write music. <clears throat> he made about 100 of those compositions. He even wrote copyright on them because he knew, he knew, he knew. Um, and so I used that music in that, in that piece and that's what the opera singer is singing. So it's like a collage. I call it panoramic sound quilting because I'm quilting all these different elements together within also the Western notated music that they came out of before they went into that. Can you talk a little bit more about panoramic sound quilting? How did you kind of hit upon this, this phrase to describe what it is you're doing? Yeah, you know, it's so interesting. It was a phrase I came up with a long time ago and I figured people would forget about it. And now that the work is solidified in a certain way. People ask me about it, and I don't mind talking about it. At first, I said, you know, quilting. Why did I choose quilting? Like, what am I... But my grandmother, my Mississippi grandmother, grew up in a family, one of 12 sharecroppers, and the family used to quilt together. And she would talk to me about, like, what that process was. And it's just very much, it's, it really boils down to a strategy of layering. And I feel that's what I'm doing with the music. It's a strategy of layering and kind of sewing different pieces together to come up with these um, full-length scores. Yeah, and, and when you talk about layering, you're not just talking about music, you're talking about narr like a, a kind of narrative. So in some ways, it's, it's mixed media. And in this last record, you use video. Yeah, it definitely is mixed media, and I I like craft work. I like making things with my hands, and so if I'm not making sounds on the saxophone, I like the act of feeling texture and ripping and cutting and gluing and, and piecing things together. And uh, the way my grandmother used to talk about quilting, it was like, well, you know, where did the material from the quilt come from and she would say oh it'd just be you know scraps from everybody's clothing that they had outgrown over the you know year or whatever and then you know you have these scraps that seem like these throwaway things but then when you sew them together it creates this magnificent array of color and design and pattern 
And so I think that's, I'm kind of after that a little bit. You've referenced your family quite a bit uh, in this conversation so far. I mean, how much of, and you've also referenced your, your fascination with American history in general. How do you see the two kind of linked? Well, I just, like, I'm so, I'm so thankful to come from the history that I come from. I'm so fascinated uh, by you know, these themes that no matter what your cultural background is, is you, your family has explored, your bloodline has explored these themes of pain and joy and sadness and just complete utter misery. And then, you know, amazing happiness and just, you know, trauma and, and, uh, I'm so fascinated by the human experience, what it means to be human and the different kind of uh, terrains that we explore throughout. And my hope was this music would allow people to remind themselves that they're actually not that much different from the person sitting next to them because we have those commonalities. Um, Personally, I thought that dealing with the history and dealing with American history and coming from this cornerstone of a particular cornerstone of African-American history, I thought, yeah, America is finally ready to like, we're ready to talk about these issues. It's, you know, the president looks like my uncle. Forgetting that, you know, he barely got voted into the White House. It was like 49%, 51% or whatever. Um, and not like he's been the greatest president in the world. We don't need to talk about that. He's, but he's still, you know, he represented a particular kind of progress where it was like, okay, we're ready to talk about difference in America in a different way. At this point, though, I feel like that's a naive, uh, that was quite naive on my part. I just took your question somewhere else. Sorry. It's okay. I'm a little spacey today. Why was it naive? Uh, because uh, uh, Sandra Bland, Eric Garner, uh, Philando Castro, um, uh, Alton Sterling, uh, so many, you know, Tamir Rice, um, it's like a twilight zone right now. Like, I don't understand completely what is happening at this time. And I feel, I feel like it's representative of a previous time that I actually have talked about in the music because I thought, oh, we're, people will listen to this music and they'll be able to see beyond like ideas of race and difference and gender and class and they'll be able to see this humanness that I'm trying to get to no we are still a mess and so uh, that is something that is consuming my thoughts uh, in regards to the direction of the music right now so you know I think a lot of times when when people put out music that may touch on whatever's going on in the world, often people want to take a step back and say, well, no, I'm not, but I'm also not trying to be political. I'm not trying to make a statement. I mean, you're clearly saying here that you had a bit of like intent um, to educate, that you want to be attached to 
to kind of adjust this narrative in a way? Well, I didn't want to... I get, you know, that's the problem with artists talking about their own art, right? There are like things that we don't see even when we talk about it. And that's just common. The justice narrative for me just comes from my upbringing and the, I was raised in a really political environment, this constant reminder of history. So, you know, it sits there. I didn't really want to create the work to educate people, I thought, that by focusing on these themes that were very personal to me, as a New York-based artist at the time, people would be able to see that, oh, it's, I don't have like an angle. I'm not trying to like, you know, get one over on people or whatever. I'm just trying to deal with something, explore something that is really personal to me. And they'll be able to relate to that. And I know, I know that when I play the music in places like Poland, for instance, like Warsaw, the most amazing thing about playing for Polish audiences is oftentimes people will come up to me after those shows and they'll share stories with me about their own humanness or their own family that shows me that they got something from it that went beyond you know, how it's being placed. And it used to upset me a little bit that people wanted to kind of, when the music came out, it was like, oh, she's exploring history, but she's, you know, it's so political. What? Like, I'm just, you know, or I've actually been turned down for for some things because people say, oh, it's it's just too political. It makes people feel bad. Or I'm like, okay, what well, it makes you feel, I'm sorry. If it makes you feel bad. History is awesome. I'm not trying to, I don't know. But I, I, I guess as an African-American person, African-American looking person who's, I'm so many things. I took all these DNA tests this year, actually. I'm so many things. But as this person, I do feel a particular kind of responsibility to, uh, I stand on the backs of so many people that never got a chance to express themselves. Everybody in this room can say something like that. But I particularly feel, because of what I know about American history, I know that to be true. So I feel a responsibility to make sure I'm really reaching and and sharing the hard parts. Because the hard parts are where you have the real meat and the real kind of transformation. Um this kind of message music, I guess, is is making a comeback, certainly in pop music, I think, within the last year or so. You mentioned that you listen to some pop music. I mean, do, do you have any thoughts on on whether what people like maybe Kendrick Lamar, Beyonce, um, I mean, it doesn't have to be them in particular, but what pop music is doing with message music, is it effective at all? Do you see, what are the precedents for it as well? Well, it's just so interesting because, I mean, to be... A black person in America means to pay attention. I'm a pop culture junkie. I pay a, a lot of attention to pop culture because it informs how people seem to see the black body. That's why it seems to inform. Pop culture informs how police officers are approaching, you know, harmless uh, black men who are in their car or uh, pop culture informs how this cop responds to Sandra Bland in her car saying, it's my car, I can do, I, I think she was smoking or something. And she said, you know, it's my car, 
I can do what I want to do in my car. Pop culture informs that. So I do pay a lot of attention to that. Message music, I just feel like the, all the music that I've ever listened to, that I've ever loved, from, you know, I mean, like, from Wu-Tang to, like, Johnny Cash to... It's all message music to me. And so what's happening now... I mean, Kendrick Lamar is a really... He's a really important figure, I feel like, in the in just music in general, in terms of the voice he's trying to give. Beyonce is a really, you know, she, I like to say Beyonce is like, everybody has a part to play and everybody's doing what it is they can do. And I feel like she's doing what it is that she can do. And it's been really interesting how watching musicians who have to be brand conscious, how they move, how, you know, this the aesthetic that she's sharing now is not something new, but it's an aesthetic that she had to pull back for a while. Now she <clears throat> she's so established, she can do whatever it is she wants to do. And so it's it's fascinating and interesting in that way. I don't know, my fear is that what I see happening is kind of like a, the message music is pushing backwards to uh, sometimes to uh, an intellectual area that we've already kind of been as a people. And that's the thing. That's the thing that troubles me. Like some of the language that I hear uh, in the Black Lives Matter movement, for instance, which... I don't I wouldn't say I'm a I'm a lone soldier, I'm a lone wolf kind of person, but I do support that movement. But like some of the words that I hear are words that I also heard in the black power movement that my my parents were a part of and just trying to figure out okay, where did we like make a transition and where is the new language for how we talk about difference and why are we still talking about like like, I hate the word white supremacy, white supremacist. Like, I don't want to... Those words are not in my vocabulary. I don't ever want to even voice them or say them. They speak to an earlier time for me, you know, where the Klan, you know, burned down my great-grandmother's house and murdered her father and, you know, just all these things. That's what I think about when I think of white supremacy and white supremacists. What's going on right now is way more uglier than that. It's like, it's so, I just want, thank you. I just want like, I'm really hungry for new language in terms of how we talk about these ideas. Can you elaborate maybe what you mean when you say it feels uglier? It's more sophisticated. It's, that's the great thing about, I was watching uh Who's that guy who has the the comedy guy with the Afro, Kamau Bell? W. Kamau Bell. Yeah, W. Kamau Bell. He was talking about like how subtle racism has become and how people don't... I've had these conversations, too, where your friends don't even realize that that, that was a really racist moment that you just experienced. Like, it just completely went over their heads. It, Racism has a a new hidden face. 
and it's being festered and fostered by people like Donald Trump. And like, though I appreciate Donald Trump's audacity. <laughs> He's so audacious. It's just like, wow, he just really lives in his own alternative reality. And that's, it made him a billionaire being in this alternative reality. But it's, it's feeding violence and it's feeding fear. You know, racism really just comes from fear. That's what it is. Any sort of ism is really about a fear. And so there's just kind of this bubbling under the surface in America right now with that. How does that, this bubbling under the surface, the names that you mentioned of these people have been murdered by police, um, how does that, has that disrupted kind of the work that, that you've been doing all along? It, I mean, it pisses me off. Like, I just, I know some policemen who are actually wonderful people, so I'm just going to say that before I continue. But I have met some some incredible people in law enforcement and I've appreciated what they've been able to do in certain communities. But there's something really, really, really rotten that is just festering and it makes it hard for people like me to kind of exist and not have to deal with being triggered all the time by, I mean, and it's a combination of not only these murders, but then like the media, of like the, you know, you could get PTSD from Twitter alone as a black person in America. As far as I'm concerned, it's just like, okay, this is this person, who's the next hashtag, blah, 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 or as a poor person or as, you know, all these different things. I want to have progressive conversations about difference. I want to have, I want to have conversations in America that go beyond the dichotomy of black and white. I thought we dealt with that. No, we have not dealt with that. But I, that's the na the naivety I was talking about. Like I had come to this assumption of yeah, no. As soon as Obama was in the White House, I mean, the people the trolling of the Obamas is so intense. It's so, it represents a particular, it's mostly Trump supporters. Like it's this, this sort of, of fear. And I, the work that I'm dealing with is sometimes really painful to deal with in the first place. So to have to stack that on top, it slowed down my process a little bit, but it's also given me more to think about and more to, more problems to solve. I like problem solving. Yeah. Let's listen to something from the third chapter. This is a, a song called Dreamer of Dreams. So, and again, another very different piece of music. In some ways, I guess, it, to me anyway, it sounds like the most contemporary of all of the things that we've listened to. Is, is there a linear progression to, to the series? Yeah, there is, but it's I've kind of jumbled it up. I mixed it up a little bit. If I had put things in order in the way that I wanted to, this chapter would have been the first record, and then the first chapter would have been the second record, and so on. Um, some people really hated this record. I this is my favorite in the series. 
It's the one I can really listen to and get into myself without hearing all the things that I might have done differently in all the different roles I was playing in the other records. What was different about making this record? <clears throat> well, it's completely, it's all overdubs. That's one. And it's, and all the process sounds are coming from the saxophone. That's a lot of people, a lot of people who've written about the music don't, they don't hear that. Um, it's not really explained clearly enough in the liner notes, but everything is rooted from the saxophone with the exception of the vocals. It just has a, I wanted to create kind of like a fever dream of sound, and it has that for me. This, it was also about water. Yes. <clears throat> so I became really, um, the last four or five years in New York, I became really fascinated with the water system and started doing more things with water in the city, which gave me a completely different, I imagine could do that in Montreal as well. Like it just, like I learned how to kayak and I was like doing like kayaking on the Hudson and like, um, and I learned how to surf and I was surfing in the Rockaways and was doing all these different things and understanding water gave me a new kind of sense of relief. When you're on a boat in the middle of the water somewhere in New York City, you feel a certain sense of space that you don't feel normally like being on land. And so in combination with that, I started reading this diary of this uh, 1860s ship captain from England. Slavery was banned in England five years earlier than it was in the States. And so there was this guy Captain G.L. Sullivan, who was put in charge by the queen or whomever gave him his order, I can't remember, to intercept these illegal slave ships that were going to the West and to take the slaves back to Africa. And he kept a journal um, of that time. And within that book were some of the very first photographs of enslaved Africans that have ever been uh, from that slave trade that have ever been documented. So I started reading that. And, and then uh, within that time period, I moved onto a boat. And so water became this whole sort of thing and this whole new way of understanding not only music, but also understanding life. As you know, when you look at, uh, I was looking at the water the other day, the water is sometimes still, the water sometimes has waves, the water sometimes has really violent waves, the water sometimes has like kind of really kind of milky waves, the water then is still. And that to me is what living life is very much like. It's like, it's this, just this movement through, this movement through, and you have to just wait for those moments when things are still again, and you have that for a while, and then you gotta go like that again, and then you gotta go like this again, and then you're back here again. So I found it very therapeutic for my artistry. Um, you've talked a lot about history, you know, reading historical documents, your own family history, your experiences being in the world, moving in the world, kayaking. Where does like digital inspiration kind of fit into, into what you do? Well, I mean, the first, the first digital collages to me were like the glory years of hip hop the 90s of uh, 
hip hop that I came up around, like they were the urban collages to me that I was heavily exposed to while also listening to a lot of classical music and a lot of jazz and a lot of just all these different sorts of things. And so what were you listening to? Like, in terms of- I don't know. I mean, like De La Soul, uh, A Tribe Called Quest, you know, East Coast stuff like Nas and, you know, again, Wu-Tang and the West Coast. I, I've always loved their audacity. That's but I've never been able to quite and and sonic like the sonicness of West Coast hip hop I always found really interesting, but just the sample aesthetic in terms of my generation like that is a a big thing if you've ever been with somebody who's like a real bona fide sample crate digger, you know I'm talking about like a bona fide crate digger who's just like in the crates. You know, and just really trying to find that thing and obsessing over like two bars of recorded sound. That's really something amazing um, to be around. And so I feel like my introduction to the digital came through that first and then went in other directions where I was exposed to um, many amazing uh, electronic artists like Marianne Amache, Mia Masaoka, um, Marina Rosenfeld, uh, Ania Lockwood, um, 20th century composers who were working with electronics. So I, you know, the great George Lewis, uh, trombonist and, and scholar from Chicago, who is now based in New York, also very much in the digital realm and the, the computer world. Though the com- computers have been a part of my life, all of my life, so, but that's a whole other discussion. Yeah. Well, I also wanted to kind of talk a bit about I mean, about that exactly. I mean, when we were kind of emailing back and forth, you were talking about about kind of the prevalence of computers in our in our lives and and earlier you mentioned you know Twitter can give people PTSD oh, yeah. and how do you you're 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 synthesizing so much information something that you might want to incorporate into your music even or to your your art practice I mean how are you protecting your brain I'm I'm struggling I, I think we're all struggling but I trying to find different ways to operate. So I see, so the computer, my family had access to some, to like some of the early um, versions of computers because they're involved in academic communities and and uh, revolutionary, uh, where knowledge, revolution was about knowledge. And so they saw the computer, the the possibilities of the computer in the digital world as like a progression of revolutionary ideas in terms of how, and this is years before there was the internet, but just how computer communication could spread uh, revolution. And, and now in the 21st century, I try to look at the computer and the internet, for instance, as an arts person, as a resource. I see it. And I try to figure out ways, of games of which I can play with it, where one, I'm learning something, and two, I'm spreading something. Uh, and three, I'm connecting and creating community, because that's really what it should, should be about. Um, and so I struggle right now with just like 
different social media platforms, for instance, like trying to figure out, well, what is useful and what is not useful. I find Twitter really useful for just spreading ideas. But I also find like Twitter can up your personal snark. Oh my God, like you could just, your Twitter could just be complaints from your whole day. Or your Twitter, or it can up kind of like some egocentric stuff. Your Twitter could be about what you ate today, what you bought today, who you hung out with today, you know. It's, uh, or your Twitter can be like your sort of, you, you want people to know that you, you know, just how, how conscious you are. And that's what you, you know, so it's just, so I struggle with this. So I'm trying to figure out a way for a while I was using it as a way to, um, connect, uh, a black lives matter supporters and black lives matter people together in terms of, you know, how, uh, people will post like, you know, these, uh, protesters need bail here or blah 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 like there are all sorts of things you can do like that but now I'm trying to use it as a resource for mining the internet for ideas about creativity because I found that the political stuff that I and I still place I can't help I watched the vice president debates last night horrified I could not you know just not say something but so I try to see each I try to see the internet as just different corners of of being resourceful and and trying to place things like Instagram for instance I see Instagram as kind of like a game I've quit Instagram like four or five times I'm back on it again and that's and that's like the psychotic thing like these tools these things that are supposed to bring us together are actually acting like drugs where they're upping you're, you get on them because they up your dopamine levels, right? That's what, you know, like, you get off Twitter. And then as an artist, sometimes if you get too involved in, the, in that whole world, you'll get off the computer feeling like you creatively accomplished something when actually you did absolutely nothing. And you can have a whole career. You can, like, build a whole... It's like, what was that game that people used to play? You know what I'm talking Second Life. It's like you can build, like, a whole kind of second life between Instagram, Twitter, uh, Snapchat, um, you know, all these things. So I'm just trying to figure out different ways in which I can use them to create community and that's how I'm trying to protect my brain but I am actually failing I, I said I was going to announce today that I'm about to just quit everything because it's also taking away from art time I have to make stuff I make stuff you know and so these tools though they are resourceful they're technically also marketing tools so we're kind of like in this kind of marketing zone marketing language and it's I find it really really troubling and I worry about coming gender I worry about little girls and boys growing up now who are really ensconced in selfie culture and how damaging that is I'm glad I didn't have to deal with that though I met a kid the other day who's going to high school online and I wish I could have been her imagine going to high school online so you have to deal with all the bullshit so it's just 
They're different. You have to be careful what you take in. Sometimes on my Twitter, I change the location so that all the things that are trending, I have no idea. Like right now, the location is like uh, somewhere in Eastern Europe, a town that I I don't really know anything about. And so there are no hashtags that are going to come up on the trending to give me a heart attack. And sometimes, you know what I'm saying? Sometimes you have to do that. Or I have blocks on my computer now. I have like, uh, there are a couple different ones that you can get that block you off of certain sites for hours at a time. Because also as an artist, you'll have people who are trying to push you into like promote, 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 right? You can, there's like a, there's a limit there. You have to, you have to find different ways of dealing with those things. I mean, you talked about young people, younger people being kind of more ensconced in this world. Do you, do you think, and maybe some of the people in this room feel like that is like, that is an inevitable part of what it is they do. They have to be on these networks. Do you, do you see a different way through at all? Yeah, I do see a different way. I think, you know, the violinist Maz Swift, who's a really great musician that I that I that I really love, said something to me once about, you know, you should only do the things that you really want to do. You do not have to do what everybody else is doing in terms of like if you don't want to be on such and such site or such and such site, you don't have to I remember when I quit MySpace and how revolutionary I thought I'd quit MySpace and I'm never going back to, you know. And then everyone quit. MySpace. Yeah, and my right, and then you know, but now I'm on. You know, there's Facebook and there's you know all these things, and and the start of my career. I mean, I really was about you know shameless self promotion. I was out. That's the way I survived in New York in the beginning. Just kind of like nobody's gonna know I'm out here if I don't let them know that I'm out here and that's the power of the internet in terms of how it allows you as an arts person to remove the middle people that sometimes those people who really abused artists you don't need them anymore you can kind of get out there and and push yourself but there's a limit it it uh you have to be very careful in terms of how it affects your ego in terms of what you think about yourself, in terms of what people say about you, you you don't want to take a lot of that in. You have to be kind of vigilant and and looking at those things as a segment of what you do. But I know some musicians and artists who don't participate in that world at all. So I think there's there's a possibility in there. I'm more interested also in those zones because a good my largest fan base is in Germany. What? Germany. You know what I'm saying? So Germany is great, but that's that wouldn't have been possible without the internet. Or other corners of the world of people I know are listening to my music because they write to me, but I can't play shows there. How can I connect with them? Well, I can use the internet. So there are different ways and then that can get really crazy because we, you know, I had an internet stalker for a little while and that's a whole other conversation of like trolling and all these other things that take up time in your brain that you actually need to be making stuff. And so I sometimes wonder if like the quality of art making is going to go down because we're so distracted with these other things. I don't know. 
it's tricky and you just have to you just have to do what feel again this thing about instinct you have to, and intuition you have to do what feels instinctually right for you and on the internet i read this in a really great book about god i wish i remember the title about navigating uh the internet world this author said it's important that you be yourself it's important that what you place in these spaces they are true. There is truth behind them. Because also, the internet is going to be... I've actually argued with writers who will say, oh, you know, I, ha I know this and this and this about you. And I was like, oh, but that's not true. Oh, but it was on the internet. <laughs> what? I'm the person who's telling you that it's not true. It's like, well, it's on the internet. And, so, and I'm like, what? So it's on the internet. And they're like, well, if it's on the internet, it's public record. What? But it was a mistake. But it's public record. You know, so it's, there are these new kind of zones and areas that we um, have to explore. At the same time, I really appreciate how the internet has allowed people to organize. It's really, you know, I believe like movements like Black Lives Matter and other things have happened because we also got to see what happened like with the Arab Spring. You know what I'm saying? Because we had, you know, and these other places where people are fighting and standing up for their people are happening because we've got, we're now starting to see ourselves not just as American citizens or Canadian citizens or North American citizens or whatever. We are global citizens. We are citizens of the world. And so that's the exciting thing about digital culture to me. My parents were avid record collectors and show people. Like we, they take. I'd be the baby at the show. You know what I'm saying? At like the avant-garde experimental show, I'd be the kid in the corner back there. I took it. Sun Ra was a big part of my. I have some crazy stories about that. Just a big part of my upbringing. I have people in my family that lied to get into Sun Ra's funeral, saying they were kin. You know, just stuff like that. It's. I've been exposed to this type of music and avant-garde thinking for a really long time. So it it shows up. But also, I mean, in terms of like using my great-grandfather's music and, and doing kind of all this ancestral stuff in a sense, when I pass over, um, you know, God willing, whenever that's supposed to be, I just want them to know me when I come through there. I think about that a lot. I want them to know that their lives were not, that they did not suffer the sufferings. I, my, I have a grandmother way back who was a slave breeder. I have actual documentation that she, she had 25 children. Um, and most of them were sold. You know, and so things like that, I want those people to know that all that stuff that they kind of uh, pushed through made it possible for me to have a really dynamic existence. And I think I want to, I think there's some part in my psyche where I just want to place that and that's the connect I see. Coming out of Chicago, I didn't spend all of my formative years in Chicago, but I spent a, a fair amount and the lineage of musicians coming out of there where they all sounded like themselves. 
I pull a lot from that where within like, especially on saxophone, within like 30 seconds, I can tell you who's playing saxophone. You know, when you listen to some of those old records, it's like, yes. Or like I heard Anthony, the great Anthony Braxton once say uh, at a workshop, he said, the tradition in this music is about being creative, period. There's no extra. It's about being creative, period. Nothing, not being creative this way, being creative that way. Just being creative because, again, life is so short. You might as well explore what it is you need to explore before you get taken out of here to go to wherever is next. Thanks. Thanks very much. Thank you. Hey, this is Todd Burns again. Thanks for listening to Couch Wisdom. Before you go, I just wanted to take a moment to tell you a bit about the Red Bull Music Academy. The whole thing is a world-traveling series of music workshops and festivals. Almost every year since 1998, we have done the main academy event in one city. The lecture you just heard, for instance, was from the academy in Montreal. But we do events around the world throughout the year. In fact, we may just be doing an event near you pretty soon. If you want to find out more, check us out at redbullmusicacademy.com. Also, if you liked what you heard on this podcast and you're not already subscribed, please go for it and consider rating us while you're at it. It really does help other people discover the podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>